Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders network. Featuring tales to terrify and the all-new far-fetched fables. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. This is the Starship Sova, everybody. Welcome, hello, and welcome to show 431. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. Well, we're supposed to be getting into spring here, and miserable wet day, man. I'm looking out there. It has been okay, cold, but okay. But man, just that I've got the bloody hounds to take out. <laughs> oh, staying and do podcasting. Tell you what's coming in today's show. First up today, we've got an interview with Mika McKinnon, who is going to talk about NASA's defense against asteroids hitting the Earth. There is a, a darn good possibility that that sometime in the future might happen. And NASA's taking it seriously there. So I'm just having Mika on to kind of have a little chat about that, just to make sure we're all, you know, <laughs> up to speed, so to speak. Then the main fiction is Paul Bearers by Martin L. Shoemaker. And it is just a stunning story as well. And I'll tell you a little bit about Martin as well when we're getting into the show. Then we have at the end, we have our very own Amy H. Sturgis with her looking back at genre history. So like I say, I hope everyone is, you know, fine and dandy. And I know I've said that already, but it's just the last couple of shows there. I've just... I've had a lot on myself, you know what I mean? Things, a lot of things happening behind the scenes there. And, you know, we, we, Robin's kind of taken away there, the, the sanctuary. I can't even remember if I mentioned as well. But if you wanted to pop over, you know what I mean? It's just somewhere to kind of hang out in the, the District of Wonders there. And it's a lovely place. And Robin is so nice over there, do you know what I mean? So if you are feeling like anything, you know, a little bit down, a little bit lonely... Troubles, kind of anxiety-wise, anything, job, anything. You know, just go over there and kind of check. Just go over there anyways and get used to the place. And, you know, maybe when the time comes, it's 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 somewhere to, to kind of hang out and just kind of offload and people will listen. Do you know what I mean? And 
that's what I need. Do you know what I mean? And it does me so good. You know, like, I sometimes taught my wife about my little kind of things and she'll just sit and listen. Do you know what I mean? And just, it's lovely just to kind of, just to tell someone, do you know what I mean? Tell someone how you're feeling. Instead of just kind of bottling it all up because, and I've already just, do you know what I mean? Come to kind of understand and realise this. Do you know what I mean? When I first kind of, oh, I'm going into anxiety talk here as well, just for a minute or two. But when I first got it, I didn't tell a soul, man. I didn't know what the hell was happening. I kept it all locked up, just fighting it. And even just, I still get it, you know what I mean? I still live it, but even just like talking, it's like a little release valve and it's just sharing a, a, a little kind of, you know, a thought with someone, just a, you know, you're not alone, do you know what I mean? So if you are kind of, you know, alone, that's a, you know, we're all going to think come to that. You know, I'm kind of bouncing against that 50-year-old bracket there now. And, you know, what happens in the future? You know, you, you're kind of all set now. You know, your life's all set before you, but you think, you know, it could all change and it will change. Do you know what I mean? We're all kind of happy there now. Or hopefully, you know, everyone's happy there now. But, you know, as time goes on, things happen and we could be on our own. Do you know what I mean? It's just a, a bizarre time. And that's why I love Starships Over. I love this kind of, you know, what we've built up here. You know, me talking to you, you listening. It's so personal. And it's like a little, you know, it is like a kind of little sanctuary do you know you kind of just you come in and you escape and we we play stories we, we, we talk to people and we just kind of make it a nicer place and we just kind of reached out a little bit more and made sanctuary so hopefully you know if you need something or you just want to go over there just you know come over to the, the website there's there's links on there we're in facebook we're on we've got actually a there is a private private kind of group on facebook as well where if you you know you have got something you know join there and, and talk to Robin. Do you know what I mean? She's lovely to kind of talk to. She's just, oh man, just what you need. Honestly, it's just like, sometimes I'm kind of, you know, bombarder. You know what I mean? Robin, I'm crap. Just nice to get that off your chest. So, the sanctuary is up there as well if you want to kind of pop over and go over and have a, just hang out. So, the first interview then, well, it's the only interview, should I say, and it's with Mika McKinnon. Now, Mika is... A geophysicist, a disaster researcher, and a sci-fi science consultant, public speaker, and just a great educator in you know that kind of whole world of, of the sciences and kind of NASA and space. And I thought Mika would be just ideal to talk about, you know, because the, the possibility of an asteroid, like I said, isn't, you know what I mean? There's loads of kind of junk floating around up there anyways, do you know what I mean? But an actual asteroid to hit the earth is, you know, thank God we've got the atmosphere and a lot of this stuff kind of burns up, but some startling facts out there. And this, this interview was great. So Mika, thank you so much. Mika, before we go any further then, this idea of a meteor hitting earth, this is not just, you know, or is it just the, from the pages of science fiction? Could it happen? Uh, it absolutely could. It has happened many times in the past. And we've got, I think at the moment, we've identified 13,176 near-Earth asteroids. About 800 of them are at least a kilometer or larger in size. And we're pretty certain we haven't found all of them yet. So there's even more out there. That's a scary, you know, that's a scary <laughs> figure that you've just quoted there. Now, yeah. 
I read as well, you, you wrote this article, and I'll, I'll link to it as well. It was a fascinating article. You're saying that NASA have now set up this Planetary Defence Coordination Office, so they must think it's a real threat as well. Oh, yeah. So my two favorite jobs, job titles in all of NASA is there's an interplanetary defense officer and there's the planetary defense officer. So one, we take care of all the other planets and protect them from our scary biological squishy bits. And the other, we protect our squishy biological bits from everything else in space. So is is this place, you know, is it just simply for tracking known asteroids or do they kind of, do they actually, are they, is their job to kind of discover new ones as well? So the Planetary Defense Office is responsible for taking care of the planet from any threats from outer space, which includes figuring out what those threats are. So at best estimates right now, we've found only about 90% of all of the near-Earth objects that are at least a kilometer in size. Now, we have found about 98% of those through NASA-funded surveys. So astronomical surveys that were up looking at the sky, looking for asteroids, specifically near-Earth objects, were funded by NASA in order to look for this and are specific targets for the, the Planetary Defense Office to make sure we know what it is that could hit us. You know, when you see it there, though, like a, a kilometre across, that's a big chunk of earth or rock or whatever. How how bad of an impact would one of them do to earth? Well, there is this absolutely amazing tool online called the Impact Event Calculator run out of Purdue. And you can play around with what it takes when you take Never. different sized objects made of porous rock or solid rock or even like iron and crash it into the planet at different velocities from the lowest. Here's the barely escape velocity that everything at the entire solar system is kind of moving at to even higher than that. Do we just slam it into the earth straight down or is it like a glancing blow or anything like that? And then seeing what happens. It is, it is fantastically fun and I highly recommend it if you kind of want to have a bit of nightmares. <laughs> I'll get, I'll, if you don't mind, I'll get the link off yeah. you for that. Mika, that would be lovely to, <laughs> just to find That's, out how how much we could survive with a, you know, a, a little you know, object hitting with, because it's, I guess it's not, you know, compared to the size of the Earth, it doesn't have to be that big. No, it really doesn't, because we're talking about huge amounts of energy here. Uh, so you really don't, it, <laughs> it takes surprisingly little to ruin everything on our fragile little planet, particularly for, uh, like, the planet will be fine, but us squishy biologicals are are a lot less happy about things. We're delicate. Is you know if they find a, a new object, what is the the process? You know this planetary defense coordination office. That is a fab name. Now, what is the process they do if they do discover a new? You know, is it is it kind of is it a message sent out to everyone? Uh, so there is a database that we put all of these observations in that is run at the Harvard Smithsonian Small Bodies Institute. It might be Small Planetary Bodies Institute. It's one of those horrible names where you're like, wow, that's a mouthful. <laughs> uh, and they are, first of all, they have to be identified. So not everything that is near the Earth is going to kill us, thankfully. Uh, so first is deciding what is a potentially hazardous asteroid. Uh, so potentially ha hazardous asteroid needs to come very, very close to the Earth. So within um, about 8 million kilometers 
of the Earth's orbit, and it needs to be big enough that if it hit the Earth, it would actually survive coming through the atmosphere. So that has means about 30 to 50 meters minimum. Anything smaller than that tends to disintegrate on the way down. Uh, and even that doesn't mean it will actually impact the Earth. So the next step is to track the orbit and to track the orbit as carefully as possible to be able to predict where it's going to be in future orbits. And that is characterizing the shape, the size, the spin, the physical composition is the next stage after that where we go, okay, fine, it might actually hit us. What is going to hit us? Uh, and that is usually done using radio telescopes because um, they can get better characteristics of uh, the physical shape of the asteroid than pretty much anything else. And sometimes infrared measurements as well, if we're lucky. You know, and I, I might be kind of totally wrong in this, but you know the, the one that was a couple of years ago and it we, it was all captured on video and it flashed, was it like the, the Russian skies? It, it yeah. Fell. Did we know about that one? No. See? So well, that's <laughs> the terrifying bit. So something like that. So Chabangsi, um event, we got lucky in that it happened over a place without many people in it. If that event had happened directly over a city, we would have had a lot more injuries from it, mostly because you see this amazing thing in the sky. Everybody rushes to the windows to look out at it. Then the, it explodes above the city. It doesn't actually impact and cause a big crater. But that explosion is enough to set off a shockwave. And that shockwave shatters windows. So everybody who's crowded up to the windows to look has just gotten a face full of shattered glass, which would lead to huge amounts of injuries. Because I'm sure you're enjoying this doom and doom. <laughs> I like hypotheticals a lot better than people actually dying. So as long as it hasn't actually happened, I can be very cheerful about it. When it has happened, I tend to get a lot more sober. Give us a little kind of like say physics. Why does it explode above? Why doesn't it kind of hit the creator and you know make the kind of the movie star or the movie film yeah. what we know that way? So that one was too small. Right. That was a wee little one trying to crash to the earth and it wasn't big enough. So there's atmospheric friction. There's all that heating. There's the asteroid itself is slowing down as it slams into the thick goo of our atmosphere instead of the nice, beautiful, clear vacuum of space where it can just race around forever. And all of that puts a huge amount of stress on the asteroid. If it's not very strong and it's not very big, that stress can burn it up through atmospheric heating. It's kind of like a heat shield on a spacecraft, but not actually designed to withstand any of it. And it falls apart. So then you can get like the scattering. So this can actually happen even with really large events. So like a comet that slams into our atmosphere, it can break off into a whole bunch of smaller chunks that are still big enough to make it to the surface and then cause individual impacts. So we get a whole bunch of impact events at the same time. That's not good either. So Mika, I know, you know, kind of we're going on about that kind of, Meteorite, but it just—it's it's interesting, you know. Was this when you see a, just a, a little bitty small one? Was it a kind of, I don't know, say the size of a football, or was it this, maybe the size of like you say a double decker bus? You know, how big was it for our kind of minds to comprehend? Well, it was about twenty meters in diameter, so we've got a ten thousand ton rock, and it disintegrated about a hundred kilometers above the ground into little teeny tiny pieces. 
So when it was slamming through the atmosphere, we had the atmosphere was piled up in front of it. The atmosphere could not move out of the way fast enough. So it creates this high plasma, high temperature plasma directly in front of it. And it shoved that forward, which is what caused most of the damage on the ground. Um, and also what we could see. We didn't actually see the meteorite. We saw the plasma shockwave it was creating. And that was the first time we knew anything about it, even anywhere near our planet, was seeing that. I mean, was that probably the kickstart to kind of for NASA to go, you know, we need something, you know, we need we need to kind of know about the... Do you think that might have been the kickstart? Or have they been plan, planning this kind of planetary defence coordination office for some time now? Well, we... People in the astronomy community know this is a problem and people in the geology fields know this is a problem because our planet is scattered with giant craters and our Earth's history is scattered with extinction events. And although we might debate whether or not the craters caused the extinctions, like did the big chunk of rock slamming into the planet killed the dinosaurs or the dinosaurs already dying or was it toxic fumes from the siberian traps or was it some combination of all of these things it doesn't really matter because having a large chunk of rock slam into the planet and destroy a city directly and cause major climate disruption everywhere else and send out huge tsunamis you can get firestorms from them so like walls of fire expanding out from the impact site all of these are gonna make for a really bad day even if it doesn't technically lead to extinction so we've known it's a problem we've known we've wanted to do something about it but the problem in science is always where's the money so it's not that the scientists didn't know about this and didn't know it was a problem it's that the public didn't want to fund it so once we got a high-profile event, something that everybody saw and went, oh, that's <laughs> scary, suddenly we've got the money available to actually put into these programs that we've been wanting to do all along. Hell, I'll put, I'll put a bit in. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, just chip in the cost of a coffee and you've really seriously funded a large chunk of the program for the entire year. If I mean, everybody just chips in the price of a coffee. When you think about it, I mean, we must have dodged a bullet there so, like, by the skin of our teeth, really. Like, or some city did. Yeah, like, that one, it would have been a city killer. So, yeah. it's so when we say it's, it's 20 meter diameter, I'm saying that we don't actually care and call as a potential hazardous event anything smaller than 30 to 50 meters. So, that event in Russia was not technically a hazardous event. Because its impact would have been too small. Man, scary stuff. Is the Planetary Defence Coordination Office, are they the only organisation out there kind of looking looking out for it? Yes. So NASA is the only space programme that I'm aware of that has a office dedicated to planetary defense and their objective is to coordinate so it's not so much that they have a fantastic arsenal of sci-fi technology ready to spring into action and take care of an incoming threat as they're the point of information where you can go and say hey i heard on the news that there was something that was coming near the earth are we all gonna die and the answer is almost always no, no, we're not going to die. It's okay. This one isn't hitting us either. Um, and that if there is an actual threat, they're the ones who are hopefully going to be 
organizing an international response because if we've got death from the skies raining down on us, it's going to be more than any one space agency can handle. We're going to need to all team together to deal with it. I was going to say, Mika, t- tell us we're actually working on something, are we, if, if this happens? Uh, there are a bunch of ideas, none of which are currently happening, but some of which, if we had enough warning, we could spend enough time and money to make them happen. So most of the, the ones that are closest to moving from science fiction to reality right now are the technologies in the asteroid redirect mission. So this is, uh, NASA is planning on, we've had now the European Space Agency and the Japanese Space Agency and the um, American Space Agencies have all sent out little robots to asteroids and comets and sometimes managed to collect pieces and bring them home. So they've done teeny tiny little retrieval missions. Uh, mostly from comets. Um, now NASA is setting up their asteroid redirect mission where they're going to try and move an asteroid. Now, this originally was planned to be this big, fancy project, but due to funding, mostly, money is such a pest. Um, so mostly due to money, the program has been, the project has been scaled down to now it's going to go get a tiny little piece instead of a big, honk an asteroid and move its orbit. Uh, But theoretically speaking, they're going to keep stepping those missions up and making them more and more impressive in terms of how to actually move stuff. Last question then, Mika, if you don't mind. uh, Yeah. Are we we in a good position now? I guess we must be, compared to, say, a couple (laughs) of years ago when that thing came down, we must be kind of well aware of what's out there now and the, the risks, you know, we must be able to put figures on it and maths, do the maths about it. We're doing a lot better. And you can actually look up online again. There's a giant database of all known small bodies, uh, which is what we call all the asteroids and comets and everything. They're tiny. Uh, so you can look them up and see what their orbits are and what we've predicted on them and what the chances of them ever impacting the Earth are. And I think that the one that's most dangerous to the Earth right now is like one in 10 to the negative 27 chance of ever actually hitting us. So it's like ridiculous number of zeros to the point where I can't even list it as a number because it's got too many zeros for me to find words for it. So that's great. And we've done a really good job of finding more of these objects. Like we're now up above the 90th percentile in terms of finding things that could smack us, which again is great. Our technology for doing anything about it, if we do find a threat, is currently non-existent, which is not great. There's still more objects to find, which is not great. Uh, But we are doing better. I mean, 15 years ago, the most consistent group of people looking for small bodies and tracking their orbits every year was a group of high school kids in a summer camp. And then an occasional telescope, but they didn't have dedicated programs. So now we're getting dedicated programs, and that's fantastic. We're getting better technologies for all sky surveys to do automated searches and notice these asteroids moving around night to night to night automatically and tagging them, which is also fantastic. So it's getting better, but we still have a ways to go. Well, I guess I guess on the, the last word then is if there is one going to come down, don't I guess your your, your advice is don't stand next to your window and watch it. 
Yes. Yeah. So if you do see a giant fireball in the sky, set up your phone or camera or anything else to record it and then turn away. I know it's really hard to do. And honestly, I will probably be one of the people with like lacerations on my face from being plastered up against it. Or, you know, open the window. That could help. <laughs> Just get outside to watch. Mika, I've just remembered there when we were talking just before we kind of came and did the interview, you mentioned, I forget, was it snow carrots or space carrots? Yeah, snow carrots. Yes, tell us about that. snow carrots. Uh, All right. So this is something we just learned from the uh, Russia event is afterwards, everybody scattered out into the countryside to try and find all the pieces of this meteorite. Because the more pieces we can find, we use them as like, it's getting geological samples from other planets and asteroids. It's amazing. We don't even have to send the robots. They deliver them to us. It's great as long as it doesn't kill anybody. So, but Russia, it was winter and cold and rather stereotypically, everything was covered in snow. So what happens when a meteorite hits snow? Instead of getting that classical impact crater that's like this nice little bowl, it turns out that instead they form strange funnels of dense snow diving into the surface. So the meteorite slams into the snow, the shockwave that we'd seen as the hot plasma ahead of it in the sky. Well, that same shockwave dives into the snow, causes super compression underneath that little tiny meteorite. So if you dig it up, you end up having a hole in the snow. At the bottom of the hole is a little meteorite. And below the meteorite is super dense snow. And all of it has much bigger sized ice crystals. So they're much coarser than usual. Um, and we're calling them snow carrots. <laughs> Just to, you know, keep a little bit amused in this... <laughs> In the doom and gloom of the yeah. the world destroying, let's just call them snow carrots. That's yeah, wow. Instead of something cheerful, make it a little bit Bugs Bunny in there. Be like, you know, we can't do anything right now anyway, so whatevs. We'll have some snow carrots. Mika, it's been lovely talking to you. Thank you so much for coming on. Absolutely. It's been fun. Thank you so much. <laughs> Again, Mika, thank you so much for coming. Just enlightening and just giving that kind of taste of, you know, hopefully Lass has got their, their finger on the pulse and, you know, we're all kind of ready and and waiting. And I've put a, I've went over to them sites where Mika was talking about where we can kind of look at, you know, rocks falling, just what kind of, we're all right. You know what I mean? I'm, I'm relying on the atmosphere. Burn, that's my kind of hope, relying on the atmosphere burning them up because they'll burn the size of a bus up, no problem. Do you know what I mean? So, fingers crossed we're all right. For a few, few hundred years anyways. Eh? So, next up is the main fiction. And it is by Martin L. Shoemaker. And it's entitled Paul Bearers. Now, it, this was originally published in Galaxy Edge magazine. Edited by Mike Resnick. Now, let's go back. See, I think it was... 2013, and I used to do, and one day I might, you know, get them and just proves, mind you, I used to do those writers' workshops. And this was the third one, which was Paul DeFilippo and Mike Resnick. And I kind of, you know, we, we do it on, I think it's called a webinar, and we have about 25 people in there. And it's just a, you know, we, we kind of have the story and we give it to the, the Paul DeFilippo and Mike Resnick to kind of read these stories and then critique them. 
And that's how this little writer's workshop came off. And one of the attendants was Martin L. Shoemaker. And I read the story, do you know what I mean? And what he sent over. And I was like, oh, that's darn good. You know what I mean? Like a little writer's workshop, you know what I mean? You kind of, you expect a little few flaws and a few, well, you know, a little... Begin of baby steps, shall we say. Well, I, I read this story and I was thinking, oh, man, hey, wow, that's a, that's pretty good. We did the actual day event and, you know, I, I was like, it's there and I was kind of passing people over to the, the writers and everything like that. And I was chatting with my regs and Restic and he mentioned Martin. He said, that that's a, that's a cracking story. Do you know what I mean? A cracking writer there. So that's the first time I became aware of Martin L. Shoemaker. And the funny thing is when, you know, because I had to get Martin and I had to get Mike, you know, like hooked up on on Skype or go to a webinar, whatever it was. And I always remember talking to Martin in his in a car park via Skype in his car. Do you know what I mean? That was the kind of first impression. And this is like, say, going back early 2013, I was chatting on with Martin and we had the day event. And I always remember Mike Resnick after the, you know, the kind of, the kind of interview shows, whatever it, you know, the little workshop that that I was running, you know, I had a chat and he said, you know, that is a, a cracking story. Do you know what I mean? That was one of the best he's seen for a long, long time. And this was the time when, like I say, it's come from Galaxy Edge magazine. This was just before Mike had actually started Galaxy Edge. So we're at, we're now at a number, I think it's number 19, you know, so it's been going a little while there now. So, Mike Resnick said, I'm going to get that story for the magazine. And I didn't realise when, you know, we'll bring Jeremy into the kind of equation there now. And Jeremy's the editor of, as you know, as of this show. I kind of, you know, just, yes, I'm the superstar. I turn up to the, <laughs> I turn up and I just record the show. And then I realise, you know, oh, in a couple, you know, in a week's time, we've got a Martinell. And it all kind of clicked together. I thought, that's the story that Mike proofread and, and and fell in love with to begin with. And this is the, the story that kind of kicked off Galaxy Edge magazine. Now, I'm not sure if, you know, if there were stories already picked for that first issue, but it was certainly, you know, picked up from that workshop and put into Galaxy Edge magazine. And then, like I say, Jeremy's come along, and guess, I'm guessing, didn't know any of this and just thought, wow, this is a good story. Do you know what I mean? And, yeah, I'm putting my... Put my heart on the line there now. You'll see a lot more of Martin L. Schumacher. He is a fantastic writer. No word of a lie. No word of a lie. This guy can write science fiction brilliantly. Yeah, he might have been going, you know, a couple of years, and that's, you know, you think a new writer. Check out some of his work. It is fundamentally brilliant. Do you know what I mean? I get excited when I read a Martin L. Schumacher story. Mike Resnick, 2000, you know what I mean? A kind of a story he spotted there straight away. Do you know what I mean? And I'm telling you, Mike Resnick's read hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of stories over his life. You kind of, will you read that? Will you check that out for us? This this story and what Martin, you know, is kind of is doing there now is just, if you want any more proof, honestly, pop over to Clark's World. They've got a story up there called Today I Am Paul. And it's read by Kate Baker. Kate just got this voice. That story, man, it'll send shivers down. It's just so good, so clever writing. Do you know what I mean? And like I say, 
this is another kind of, you know, I'm, I'm kind of waffling here, but this is another kind of prediction. You'll see a lot more of Martin L. Shoemaker. You'll see a lot more of Jeremy Sal. You know, Jeremy, honestly, is picking some great stories on his own without any help. Do you know what I mean? He knows what to do. He knows what makes a good story. He's a kind of writer. He's he's plugging away there doing the. You will see Jeremy as an editor sometime in the future. Yeah, he'll... If I can help, you know what I mean, and kind of give him the free reign to kind of do what he wants on this show, I would, that's my job done, do you know what I mean? I want him to go on to edit, you know, to be the new John Joseph Adams, to do all that. So those two people, Martin L. Shoemaker and Jeremy Sal, you will see a lot more of them in the kind of, that's all the people we need in the kind of science fiction, you know, firmament to kind of keep this kind of going. Just a great young editor and a fantastic writer. There. Now, put me, put me hard on the line there. You better like this story. Do you know what I mean? You get the end of it. All right. It was all right. You know what I mean? What, what was the ending about? So, I will give you a little bio on Martin L. Shoemaker. So, like I say, it was originally published in Galaxy Edge magazine. Martin L. Shoemaker is a programmer who writes on the side, or maybe it's the other way around, Programming pays the bills, but the second-place story in a Jim Bean memorial writing contest earned him lunch with Buzz Aldrin. Way to go. Programmer never did that. His work has appeared in Analog, Clark's World, Galaxy Edge, Digital Science Fiction, Forever Magazine, and Writers of the Future, Volume 31. His novella, Murder on the Aldrin Express, was reprinted in the year's best science fiction, 31st annual collection, and in the year's top Short SF Novels 4. His short story, Today I Am Paul, <laughs> so good, will be reprinted in the year's best science fiction, what was that, 33rd annual edition, the, the best science fiction of the year of volume one, and the year's best science fiction and fantasy, and there's actually one more, and the year's top 10 tales of science fiction eight. There you go. That, man, that proves it. Go and listen to that story and you'll see how good this writer is. And also, it's going to be appeared in the kind of French translation in Galaxy magazines. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, that's, I'm getting a bit kind of, you know what I mean? And what makes it even better, this today's show, is we've got a, a fantastic narrator on, Brian Rollins. Brian Rollins was born in California and grew up in and around the western US. He currently resides in a Highlands Ranch, CO, where he works as a voice artist primarily focused on audiobooks. He is probably best known for being the voice of Glenn and Taylor series of audiobooks written by J.B. Sanders. If you're ever in the Denver area in March, you can find him on stage at With Magic Moments, a non-profit theatre group that brings theatre professionals and people with special needs together to create original show every year. Way to go, Brian, man. What a guy. You can hire Brian to generate your next audiobook at thevoicesinmyhead.com. Brian, that's just amazing. Thank you. So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present Paul Bearers by Martin L. Shoemaker Read by Brian Rollins My platoon marched through the red jungle, each of us a walking death machine in the best powered armor the stronghold's engineers could design. Rifles, missiles, armor, scanners, even a recycling life support system. A suit had the firepower of a small army by 20th century standards, and yet the mobility of a single soldier on foot. But deadlier than all that hardware 
was the trained warrior inside it, each of us an expert at spreading death and destruction across dozens of planets in our war with the League. With the neural controls in the suits, we only had to think at the target, and a barrage of destruction would rain down upon it. But the League had plenty of firepower of their own. A whistle came over the suit's audio, loud enough that I could hear it through the helmet, too. The suit sounded the missile alert, but too late. A bright light flared ahead, much too close, and the ground heaved. Even with the suit gyros, I lost my footing when the shockwave hit. I was still falling when the heat wall from the explosion arrived. My rad alarms didn't go off. Small blessing there. At least it hadn't been a nuclear strike. But the heat was still scorching. If I hadn't been in an armored suit, I would have been flashed to ash. Even through the suit, I took nasty burns. The shockwave drove me back to the rock wall. The stabilizers and cushions did everything they could, but my head still snapped back in an instant of agony that shot from my neck through my torso, before suddenly I felt nothing at all. The last sight I saw was my fellow soldiers similarly tossed and toasted. Then all went black. When I woke, the suit was walking back through the jungle to our pickup point. When I had lost consciousness, it had switched into corpsman mode, analyzing my injuries, applying medicines, immobilizing broken bones, and then walking me back to medical aid. A suit didn't have the brains to fight and react, but it could follow simple program commands and adapt to the environment. In corpsman mode, the suit was in charge, and I was just along for the ride. I couldn't guess how long the suit had been in corpsman mode, but those red-gray trees looked like something we had walked through almost three hours before the League's missile had shattered our platoon. Suits tended to go slow in CMM, so as not to make injuries any worse, so it might have been walking four hours or more. I peered through the red brush of EJC-49-3. Yeah, my team had bought it for a shitty rock so remote Top Brass hadn't even bothered naming it. It made no sense, but sense wasn't part of my job. The League was on this rock, the Stronghold wanted them off, and my job was to kick them off or die trying. And die trying, was looking pretty likely. I caught movement in the distance. I thought hard about Quadrant 3, and the suit's neural scanners picked up my intention. The display zoomed in on 3. There, I could see it. Four more suits. Stronghold colors, like mine. Those were making better time than I was. That could mean the soldiers in them were still in control, but from the metronomic way in which they moved, I was pretty sure it was because they had shifted from CMM to PBM. Pallbearer mode. They no longer had to keep their wearers alive, so they could move to pick up at best speed. Who else was still out here? I turned the suit around to check. Only I didn't. I thought I moved my legs and arms, and so the suit should match my moves. Neural control is all about tricking your brain taking the parts that evolved for tasks like lifting things or focusing on one conversation in a crowded room, and training them to do the same work on simulated inputs with neural pickups to translate the outputs. Most soldiers could do basic neural control, enough to run a suit while blasting everything in sight in collaboration with your team. But a few of us got pretty good at it. I had a bit of a knack for neural control, which had recently earned me a promotion to armor officer. 
So I was accustomed to a very natural control of the suit, and so I was completely surprised when nothing happened. The suit was overriding my neural control, which was common in CMM. You didn't want a delirious soldier driving a suit to injure him further, after all. I would have to try harder, really move my legs, and then maybe the force feedback system would kick in and I would regain control. Force feedback lets you do with your muscles what you might not be able to do with your brain. So I really stopped my legs, and they didn't stop. I struggled. I tried to look down at my legs, and nothing. I didn't feel a twitch, not even a twinge from where my neck had had. I didn't feel anything below my neck. This time, I didn't black out from injury. I just collapsed, my vision going gray as if I slid backwards into a long tunnel. Soon all was gray until that faded to black. When I woke again, the suit was still walking, and I was still inside, just a hundred kilos of meat for the suit to transport. That's all I might be for the rest of my life. I would be in this suit or a civilian suit until the doctors determined whether I was part of that lucky 20% for whom neural regeneration was successful. And I had stopped believing in luck when the missile had exploded. Despair swept over me like a wave, and I saw myself drowning in it. Again, I slid into the gray tunnel, and again, the black took me. When my eyes fluttered open again, I muttered, Stop it, Alex. Take charge. I needed to vomit, but the suit's med suppressed and dismissed that urge almost before I felt it. Yes, stop it. Once upon a time, the odds of neural regeneration were zero. Now I had a 20% chance at full recovery, almost 60% for a meaningful partial recovery. Once, a person so paralyzed was doomed to a bed, unable to even sit in a chair unless strapped in. Now I could wear one of the new civvy suits. Those weren't powerful war machines like ours, but rather sleek, form-fitting models that would let me walk, run, climb, dance, diaper a baby, everything but feel. I would never feel Lena's skin under my fingers again. Never. I was falling into darkness again. My odds were positive, but I just didn't believe them. I was doomed to life in a suit, except when Lena would have to take me out of the suit to bathe me and wipe my ass. And she would do that, too, but I couldn't put her through that. Suit, stop. If the suit wasn't responding to neural commands, I would revert to voice. I would stop and find something, some way to finish what the League had started. But the suit had other ideas. Its synthesized voice, calm and neural, spoke in my audio pickups. Unit EIA-537-2961 is unable to comply. SPC Fitzsimmons, Alexander, is classified disabled and unable to perform his duties or serve in a decision-making role. This unit has switched to Corman mode until reset by the armor officer. I would have shouted, but I couldn't find the breath. I am the armor officer, you fucking moron. I order you to reset. SPC Fitzsimmons Alexander is classified disabled and unable to serve as armor officer. This unit 
must report to the new senior armor officer at the recovery vessel. Fine. That would be good enough. Who's the new senior armor officer? Sullivan? Sully would understand. She would let me, well, do what I had to do. But the bad news just kept coming. This unit has no data on who is the new armor officer. Contact with the recovery vessel Duke Phillips, SV-12703J, has been broken. A channel is available, but no one is responding. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Oh, fuck. If the League had hit the Duke as well, well, that would take care of my problem eventually. Stuck on a League-controlled rock with no pickup was as good as dead. Just a question of when. But the suit could make that take a long time. In Corman mode, it could feed me, recycling my own wastes and scavenging from local vegetation, medicate me, and provide artificial respiration for weeks. Four other platoons had dropped here, but I didn't know where the recovery ships were, nor if they were even still planetside. Unless the League found me and finished their work, I could be stuck in this tin cage until the batteries ran out. No. There had to be a way. Suit, open the channel to the recovery ship. The suit paused, running through its decision cloud. I was on the disabled list, but opening a channel had no risks, right? But if the suit saw it as a security risk, it might override me. After the pause, the suit said, Channel, open. And then I heard crackling sounds on the audio. I called the ship. SV-12703J this is SPC-73732. Respond if you're able. I used only code tags, just in case the League was listening. Operational security had been drilled into me for too many years, and I wasn't going to break it now. I heard moaning, nothing coherent. Then I heard Sullivan's slurred voice. 73732? Fitz? 
That you? Sullivan sounded awful, in pain. I checked my comp for her tag. Confirmed, SAO 73129. This is 73732. What's your status? I had planned to work my way around my... situation. But now it sounded like Sully might be worse off than me. It wasn't like her to break OPSEC. She took a long time answering. I've been hit, Fitz. Lead cruiser happened by, blew off our cover. Pilot got him, but we drew fire. Three squads in suits, plus some EMP beamer. Cap flamed the suits and, and took the survivors with scat, uh, scatter gun. But they beat up the hull, took some hits, lost most of the team here. Cap put me in a med cabinet. Then EMP Beamer did something to neural control circuits. Fried pilot's brain. Caps, too. I took the inducer off in time, but I'm hurt. And I can't get out of this cabinet. Can't get to the controls. So the Duke had been hit, and Sullivan might be the only survivor. Her neural inducer might have let her control the Duke. It was the same technology used to control a suit, letting you map your natural neural impulses to the signals of the hardware. Without the inducer, Sully was as much a prisoner of the hardware as I was. She was desperately waiting for help, but I didn't have the heart to tell her that I couldn't even help myself. That I was just waiting for a chance to off myself. I would have laughed if I'd been in the mood for funny. Here I was, a brain trapped in a suit walking on its own mission. And there she was, trapped in a treatment cabinet with only her head free. Weren't we a pair? I didn't laugh, but I could have cried when Sully got on the line again. Fitz, you're, you're coming for me, right? You can get me out of here. She sounded weaker and more desperate. I stalled. I'm no pilot, 73129. Easy. Like wearing suit, only think bigger. You can do it. We'll see. I closed the line. I didn't want to lie to Sully. It looked like her number was up right along with mine. With Cap and the pilot gone, no one seemed to be in charge. Shit, I might be the most senior officer still functional. Except the suit I wore didn't think I counted as functional. Wait. The suit didn't think so, but maybe the Duke hadn't got the message. I changed to the command circuit. Command Unit SVC12703J. This is SPC73732. I had to phrase this carefully. If I reached too far, the command unit would reject it as a cyber attack. It might even counterattack, possibly disabling the suit I wore. That would finish me, but only when I died of thirst. I had to be vague and let the ship fill in its own details. I am reporting for duty, and I claim all command powers and duties appropriate to my current status in the command structure. The command unit was much smarter and faster than a suit computer, of course. Even though my phrasing had been tricky, the command unit didn't pause at all. Understood. All routine command decisions have been delegated to command unit until relieved by proper authorities. Contingent decisions to be handled by best judgment in consultation with human officers available. Great. This entire mission was now on autopilot, and the autopilot would decide when to consult me. Then the command unit added, SPC-73732 is duly promoted to Senior Armor Officer and is given full authority to direct CMM 
and PBM operations. Great. That was all I really needed. Now the suit would have to listen to me. Suit, this is Senior Armor Officer Fitzsimmons Alexander. I order you to stop. But the suit's decision cloud reached a different conclusion than the command unit had. Negative. Senior Armor Officer Fitzsimmons Alexander is classified disabled and unable to serve as Senior Armor Officer. We were at an impasse. The suit had registered my field promotion, but it still refused to recognize my authority. As the suit marched along the path to the Duke, it at least gave me something to distract me from my black thoughts. I was pissed. I tried every override code I knew. I tried logic and reason. I tried screaming, but that only earned me a quick jolt of tranquilizer. Eventually, I decided the suit was defective. Its decision cloud damaged, and it had locked into core protocols. It had made up its mind, and nothing I could do would change it. But while my head swam from the tranquilizer, a wild idea struck me. This suit saw me as disabled, but maybe the other suits would see me as senior armor officer. I'd received the field promotion, the suit knew it, so the news was out on TACnet. Maybe I could make the other suits do what I couldn't. When my head cleared, I revisited the idea. What did I have to lose? Then I laughed. Everything. That was what I wanted, to lose everything. But I couldn't see any obvious flaws in the plan, so I got on TACnet and called up the suit command channel. All suits, this is Senior Armor Officer Fitzsimmons Alexander. Pause program. I checked the heads-up display, and I was glad that our comm system was mostly on neural control, so I could change the display with a thought. I switched it to tactical map mode, and I watched as the green dots all slowed to a stop. The tally showed 28 suits. 27 PBM, 1 CMM. The other 14 suits tallied as not responding. My whole platoon, gone. Over half could be recovered so their families would have something to bury, but only if the Duke somehow survived. What to do now? I could single out one suit and bring it to me, but one might not do the job. A suit is pretty tough against another suit. I might need four or five to finish me off right. Controlling that many individual suits could take a lot of effort and time, so I took the easy way out. All suits accept new rendezvous coordinates as follows. I took my own coordinates from the suit's comp, projected forward from my rate of travel, and set the result. All suits resume program. And the green dots started converging on my course. When they reached me, I could isolate the few I needed and then reset the rendezvous coordinates back to the Duke. It would delay pickup, but my belief in pickup was dropping to the same level as my belief in my own chances. Damn near zero. Damn the suit. It was supposed to serve me. Now I was its prisoner. It was marching me to the Duke and I would have to stop it. I would use other suits to arrest it and then finish me. So, to warm up, I practiced neural control. We had drilled this plenty of times, but not under circumstances like this. A damaged body in a damaged suit on a hostile planet. So, a little practice was called for. I thought back on my training. Neural control is about tricking your brain. Complex selection and virtual control loops were too much for 80% of the troops. They could manage the suit they were in, 
but not hop to other suits. But I was ranked higher than that 80%. What had qualified me for armor officer were my high aptitude scores in virtual control. So it wasn't hard for me to reach out and feel another suit. I pushed and my brain was in the suit. Identifying information flashed before my eyes. EIA 5372967 PFC Gutierrez Estefan. A queasy feeling came over me. Goody was one of my best friends in the platoon. I checked his post-mortem. Internal injuries, critical overheating. Goody had been 50 meters closer to the explosion than me. His brain had boiled. I shoved that thought away. I had work to do. I blinked my eyes. Not physically, but mentally. The neural signal for changing my point of view. When I opened them, I was looking through Goody's suit cam. The neural control circuits fed the camera image straight to my visual cortex, and my brain interpreted it as if the camera were my eyes. I lifted my arm, and nothing. The suit arm didn't move. I felt a twinge of pain from my neck through my arm, but that was impossible. My spine was severed. I couldn't actually feel anything. It was phantom pain, I knew that. But it didn't explain why neural control wouldn't work. And it didn't stop me from pulling back from even trying. Phantom or not, that pain was a bitch. As the suits marched, I reviewed our neural control drills. I remembered Neurologist Hill's standard spiel. You don't co-op six million years of evolution by pretending, unless you're really good at it. Then, pretending is the way to go. You have to make yourself believe you are in that suit, and you are that spacecraft, or that microprobe, or whatever you're controlling. When you believe that, your brain will know how to control it. And there was my problem. I had stopped believing. Oh, part of me believed that I was in EIA 5372967 with Goody, but a much bigger part of me believed my arm couldn't move. It was never going to move again. And so I had no business trying to move it. The phantom pain was in my brain, screaming at me. Stay away. Don't look. This is too ugly to bear. I'd rather be dead. Yes, for entirely rational reasons, I'd rather be dead. But that made it impossible for me, but that made it impossible for me to believe that I could move Goody's arm no matter how many times I had drilled situations like this. How do you do the impossible? How do you believe you can do the impossible? That one was easy. The most important lesson from boot camp. You try. You fail. You get hurt. You keep trying through the pain. And one day, you see that you've made the impossible progress. After that, it gets easier because your belief shifts. So I tried lifting Goody's arm again. This time, when the pain struck, instead of shying away, I pushed into it. I studied it. It was like a persistent jolt of lightning radiating from the right rear base of my skull, down my neck, and through my arm, making the whole arm spasm. But no, my arm was still. Goody's arm was still. The spasm was all in my mind. There was no spasm. I believed there was no spasm. And the pain slowly withdrew, creeping back up my arm and into my shoulder. Soon there was no spasm, phantom or otherwise, because there was no pain. The pain withdrew from my shoulder, up my neck, and back to its origin, 
a throbbing little dynamo of pain right where my neck had snapped. There is no pain. The suit has medicated that. There is only the memory of pain. Don't believe the pain. Just like that, the pain was gone. It had never been. The original accident was real. I couldn't deny that. But the pain since then had all been a belief system and a coping mechanism. A way to avoid facing my condition. And there before my eyes was my right hand, raised, fingers flexing, wrist twisting as I thought it should. No, wait. In that double vision you sometimes get during neural control, I saw two arms moving. One through Goody's suit cam and one through my own eyes. When I realized that, it momentarily shook me out of neural control and back into the suit. Sure enough, there was my own arm before me, flexing and moving any way I wanted. I had control of the suit. The damaged element had been me. I had stopped believing and I had lost control of the suit. Now I had it back. I stopped and I stopped. I turned and I turned. I jumped and, well, I had full control of the suit. I didn't need Goody and the rest now. I could do what I needed to do all by myself. Except I no longer needed to do it. I no longer believed there was no hope for me. It was slim, maybe, but there was still hope. I might die here on this rock, but I wouldn't give up here. That was when Goody's suit arrived. Other suits followed close behind, occupying a small clearing in the red brush. I checked the status displays. Kane, Anderson, Nelson, Frankel all my closest brothers and sisters just a day ago, now all corpse passengers in suits that had chilled internally to preserve their remains for burial. I couldn't stop myself. I checked the causes of death. Most were from lethal overheating, but those were the troops who had been closer to the blast, like Goody. A few suits had developed impact cracks, letting in the noxious atmosphere of EJC-49-3. Those remains wouldn't preserve very well. Some had impact injuries like my own, but more severe. Some would have to be hosed out of their suits. One privilege of being senior armor officer is I could delegate that duty to a junior, except that all my juniors were now corpses standing silently, awaiting my instructions. What would I do? If I wasn't going to give up, what would I do? And that would depend on my resources which right now amounted to 28 suits with their occupants and maybe the Duke back at the rendezvous point. So I might as well keep drilling to make sure I was ready for whatever came next. I walked Goody's suit up to me, averting my eyes from his visor. I couldn't bear to look at what I briefly glimpsed there, the boiled, bloated thing that had once been my best friend's face. Just a glance at the swollen flesh, eyes squeezed shut, had made my head swim but I had to look at his suit to run double drills. Switching back and forth between the suit I wore and Goody's suit, slowly at first, but getting faster. Soon, I had the two suits playing patty cake. That sounds complicated, but with practice, it's not too bad. You learn to give the suit an instruction that will take some time. And then, in the time while it's carrying out the instruction, you swap your brain to the other suit and give it an instruction as well. As long as you can swap quickly, which is the whole point of the drill, you can keep both suits on task. The instructor spoke in terms of time slices, the smallest fraction of time you could devote to a task, 
or maybe the smallest chunk of time you could notice and react. It runs at about a sixth of a second or so, faster with practice and good genes. Mine was around 0.14 seconds, 0.13 on a good day. 0.14 is plenty fast enough to play catch. I started tossing a rock to Goody's suit and back. Then I did triple drills, adding Kane's suit to the game. Then I added Anderson's suit, thinking in shorter and shorter time slices as I added suits. When I added Frankel's to the mix, I started to sweat. I had seen Sully drill with seven suits one, but that woman was a freak of nature. Five was all I could manage, and I started dropping the rock. I switched to drone drills. I picked four suits and then slaved the other suits to those. I would give instructions to those four, and the rest of the suits would imitate them. I started marching in ranks. Then I split the squads into separate files and drove the files through each other, using time slices as needed to keep the squads separated. A few suits were in worse shape than others, so I moved the damaged suits to the rear and gave them extra autonomy to override mimicry if they saw a possible collision. They shambled a bit, but they kept in line. So I had a command of a sort. Now I needed a mission objective. I lined the suits up in ranks, and we started marching toward the Duke. Then a call from Sully added new urgency to our mission. Fitz, buddy... I hope you're double-timing. Saw. Scout ship fly over. Command unit reports two squads incoming. CU's locked onto them, but... A command unit is pretty good, but a couple of well-trained squads can usually outwit one just because they have more brains to throw at it. Plus, soldiers have better mobility and can attack from more directions. A command unit is supposed to support a human defense force, not stand on its own. I answered. Sit tight. SAO Fitzsimmons and his wind-up band are on their way. And we started marching in double time. As we ran, there was one crucial thing I had to test. Normally, in CMM or PBM, a suit's weapons are locked down to conserve energy and to avoid accidental discharge and injury. Well, these troops didn't have to worry about injuries, so I tried my newly minted SAO codes and... Bingo! 28 red blips indicated that all weapon systems were armed and ready. So, it was with guns blazing that we came over the rim of the valley in which the pilot had concealed the Duke. I had a tactical map from the command unit. Below us were two squads of lead troops, slowly advancing on the ship. Each squad took turns firing chaff rounds to cloud the ship's sensors, while the other squad advanced under cover and dug into its next defensive position. The ship's point defense guns fired random cover bursts into the chaff and had taken out four leaguers, but that wouldn't be enough to stop them before they reached the ship. The Duke's hull would stand up against their small arms at a distance, but up close, they could break in for sure. When we came down upon the leaguers, I spread out my troops so the chaff rounds would be useless. They might block one set of eyes, maybe two or three, but I was time-slicing through 28 cameras, plus the Duke's, so I had the ultimate tactical view. The leaguers switched to slugs once they knew they had attackers to the rear. The crossfire was ferocious, shots ringing off from every rock and outcropping. And I heard that through 28 audio pickups, too. That was disorienting for a moment, but I quickly adjusted. As the bullets flew, I expected to lose some control. Stress was supposed to inhibit neural control or so the textbooks say. That's why we drilled so hard. But instead, I was amazed to find that controlling the suits was getting easier. 
having 28 different perspectives on the battle was strangely calming. I had a better understanding of the ebb and flow, and I knew where my attention was needed and where it could be spared. As I relaxed, I grew more ambitious, taking shorter and shorter time slices. 0.12 seconds. 0.11. 0.1. of. Soon, I found my mind expanding. Six units. Seven. Ten. A dozen. I lost count after that. I even lost track of which suit was the suit I wore. Being unable to feel my body had freed me from the confinement of one body, one suit. In my head, I wore all of them, all at once. The shots were everywhere, and the leaguers were no pushovers. I had numbers on them, but just as with the Duke, they had more brains to throw at the problem and could probably outthink me. On the other hand, I had mobility, and I still had the Duke's defenses on my side too. Plus, my one brain was more coordinated than their dozen. They had to shout orders and plans while I had to just think. The advantages just about balanced out. But we had one more advantage they didn't have. We weren't afraid to die. Most of us having done that already. When Goody took a round to his power plant, a living soldier would have shut it down, shucked it off, and gotten the hell away from it before it could overload. Instead, I ran Goody straight into their second squad just as the pack exploded, slicing the leaguers open with high-velocity shards of shrapnel and cooking them alive with white-hot plasma. In one spare time slice, I felt pretty bad about that. Gutierrez was one of my best buddies in the service, and I would have liked to bring his body back to his family. I wasn't looking forward to explaining how his posthumous medals were really posthumous. But his sacrifice was exactly what we needed. With one squad of leaguers down, the rest of us set upon their first squad. We pinned them in the point defense zone of the Duke, and with fire from all directions, we made short work of them. The Duke's troop hatch opened up, and we boarded. I didn't bother with formation. Formations are for coordinating a bunch of individuals. We moved with one mind. We all just leapt aboard, the other suits carrying their precious cargo back to loved ones who didn't yet know they were grieving. I sent Kane to check on Sully in her treatment cabinet. It looked like she would be all right if she got surgical care soon. Meanwhile, I explored the Duke's systems. It took three whole time slices, a whole third of a second, to find my way through the Duke's command unit and into the piloting system. But once I was in, another slice was all it took to find my way around and realize that I could wear this ship just like a suit. So I called out, Hang on, Sully! Not that she could move in the cabinet, but I wanted her to know we were getting out. Twenty-seven suits sat. Twenty-seven pairs of arms gripped the launch braces as I took a time slice to push with my mind. And the engines flared up and heaved the Duke free of EJC-49-3. I saw incoming anti-aircraft missiles, so I loosed a couple of chaser rockets and pushed us out of there as fast as we could go. I would be all right. Even if this was the best I could look forward to, I had found power that I had never imagined. I would learn to live with that. I turned the Duke in a barrel, just because I could. There you go. Don't forget, copyright is Martin's. Martin, what can I say? You know what I mean? You don't need any, any kind of... <laughs> you're you're going to just go on and on. You're going to be one of the kind of top science fiction writers out there. Just keep on writing. Never stop. And Brian, thank you so much. 
I mean, lovely voice, lovely voice. Hopefully get you back on the show as well. So we have now our very own Amy H. Sturgis with April's edition of Looking Back at Genre History, Ames. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. It's time for another look back into genre history. 2016 marks the 50th anniversary of Star Trek, a series that quite literally changed my life. I don't remember the first time I saw Star Trek. I think I was listening to episodes from the womb, but I know that there was never a time in my life that Star Trek wasn't there. I have watched every episode of every iteration of Star Trek. I have watched every film. And in fact, I made my leap from children's picture books to longer fare thanks to Star Trek novels, which I read back in the day when I had to use a dictionary to figure out what the words meant. Star Trek led me to authors, to ideas that have been a part of my life throughout my life. And while I can remember my first viewing of the original Star Wars film at five and a half, like a thunderbolt out of the blue, I was ready for that. I was receptive to that, in part because Star Trek had already paved the way for it. And so I've been racking my brain trying to think of what the proper tribute might be to a series that has meant so much to me, and certainly to others as well. Now, I have focused on Star Trek in some past segments, uh, most notably a three-part segment on the ways Star Trek has dealt with the question of Native America in episodes 283, 287, and 292. And I dealt with a very unusual Star Trek novel, a great one, Barbara Hambly's Ishmael, in episode 120. But I wanted to do something else, and it occurred to me that one of the first scholarly works that was published of mine when I was a new baby fledgling PhD, was a work about Star Trek. And so I thought I would revisit that and some of my interpretations from the time and offer that as a gift in this 50th anniversary season. That work was called The Sword in the Starship, and it was published by Windark Sea. And in that essay, I considered Star Trek as the modern-day incarnation of Arthurian legend. Scholars and authors have noted the similarities often. I certainly wasn't the first. In their introduction to Star Trek The New Voyages, entitled The Once and Future Voyages, editors Sandra Marshak and Myrna Colbreth write, quote, King Arthur will rise, the once and future king. Camelot will live again, and does, at least in the minds of men. Star Trek was just such a living legend, our new Camelot even more shining. Quote. Lynette Muir, in her article Star Trek The New Arthuriad, explains that, quote, For the medieval audience, Arthur's world was a golden age to look back on. For the modern audience, Star Trek is a golden age to look forward to. End quote. But the relationship between the Arthurian tradition and the Star Trek franchise is much more than like a simple issue of comparable utopian tales with significant staying power. Arthurian lore, broadly defined, encompasses, well, diverse historical, literary, poetic, theatrical, and artistic representations of Arthur, from mentioned by name in Scottish texts from around 600, even earlier mentioned by deed, to the present day, and in that 1,400-plus-year lifespan, 
Arthuriana has unfolded in multiple directions and inspired discrete sub-myths like the Knights of the Round Table, the Exodus of Joseph of Arimathea, and the Quest for the Holy Grail. The incarnations of Star Trek, beginning with the classic series in 1966, following with the 1980s Next Generation, the 1990s Deep Space Nine, and most recently Voyager, Enterprise, and, of course, the 21st century reinvention of the film franchise, well, they all, you could argue, illumine different aspects of the Arthurian cycle. Star Trek reminds us of the ethics and the aesthetics of Arthuriana because it builds on the structural and stylistic skeleton of Arthurian lore, I would say, and reinterprets it for a new and modern audience. In the process, Star Trek proves not only its own value, but also the impressive elasticity and continued relevance of the Arthurian tradition. Now, creator Gene Roddenberry unveiled his new series, Star Trek, on September 8, 1966. And then audiences met Captain James T. Kirk, his first officer, Mr. Spock, and Dr. Leonard Bones McCoy for the first time. In the casting of the show and the writing of the episodes and the chemistry among the actors, there's a phenomenon that author Rowena Warner termed the triumvirate that both intentionally and organically unfolded. The heroic male triad matured through the original three-season run and the animated series, professional novels, and feature films. And it, I would say, reflects an earlier soldier's tripartnership, namely the core Arthurian relationship between Arthur, Lancelot, and Gawain. That key Arthurian triumvirate is born as much of affection as of military hierarchy. Arthur is king, Lancelot the champion he knighted, and Gawain his nephew, spy, and warrior. In Sir Thomas Mallory's Le Mort to Arthur, Arthur freely admits his love of his two dearest comrades. Quote, Alas, Sir Gawain, in Sir Lancelot and you I most had my joy. End quote. To Arthur and his kingdom, Lancelot is the flower of all noble knights, the king's right hand. However, Gawain ranks no less in Arthur's heart. In the alliterative Mort Arthur, Arthur even tells Gawain, quote, You were worthy to be king, though I wore the crown. End quote. The bond between Gawain and Lancelot is as strong as the men's connection to their king, too. In Mallory, Lancelot acknowledges his loyalty to Gawain and all the love that ever was betwixt us. Gawain eventually accepts death at Lancelot's hand and blesses it with the admission that of a more noble knight might I not be slain. The depth of their friendship, even the passion between them, typifies this triad, and it pervades Arthuriana from the Mabinogian and Geoffrey of Monmouth onward, especially the influential 14th and 15th century texts that we see returned to again and again as even the inspiration for modern interpretations. And I would argue that this same triumvirate core resurfaces in the classic Star Trek series. Kirk, as leader, obviously fills the role of Arthur. In fact, Diane Duane seems to nod to this relationship in her professional Star Trek novel, one of my favorites, The Wounded Sky. When the spatial phenomenon visually exposes the hidden nature of people, the only mention of Kirk's true identity is a cryptic 
question from McCoy, which goes unanswered. He asks, that armor getting heavy? As second-in-command Spock holds Lancelot's position, and due to his superhuman Vulcan power, he also exhibits Lancelot's incomparable exotic strength. There's even that sense of sexual purity in the pre-Guinevere Lancelot that's parodied so effectively in Alan J. Lerner's musical Camelot, and it finds expression in the seven-year cycle of Vulcan abstinence from the original series, less so, of course, in the new film series. So to follow this connection through, then, we can cast McCoy in the third position of Gawain. He even refers to himself as Brave Knight in the episode Shoreleave, before facing the lance of a simulated armored foe. He's certainly loyal, certainly trustworthy, but despite this, he nonetheless routinely challenges the decisions of both Kirk and Spock, and he also holds the medical authority to remove either of them from duty if he deems them unfit for command. And as every Star Trek fan knows, the three risk their lives and careers for each other routinely. When Spock gives up his life in Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan, he entrusts his soul to McCoy. McCoy responds by breathing madness and death to save Spock, admitting to the Vulcan, I couldn't stand to lose you again. In Star Trek V, The Final Frontier, I know some folks would like to forget it, but hey, Kirk calls his first officer and his chief medic family, alluding to Spock's death and rebirth by saying, I lost a brother once, but I was lucky. I got him back. The three not only serve as fellow officers in the Federation then, they remain together even off-duty, as friends, even brothers. Or as even more, if you read the fan fiction. So if we think of the characters of Kirk, Spock, and McCoy as forming a symbolic whole in the Star Trek universe, incomplete without each member and the indispensable ingredients each member brings, we can see this as a key aspect of Trek. In the episode The Empath, for example, Alien scientists trap and torture the three officers. Why? In order to allow a young empath to observe the courage and compassion they bring to each other. And at the end of all that cruelty, the alien scientists tell the three that, together, the three of them teach all the lessons a young world would need to learn. Quote, your actions have been spontaneous, but as truest and best in any species has been revealed by you. Yours are the qualities that make a civilization worthy to survive, End quote. Karen Blair explains this in her book, Meaning in Star Trek, by proposing that McCoy represents the distillation of the past, Spock, the catalyst for the future, and Kirk, the solution for the present. Rowena Warner counters with the view that Kirk, Spock, and McCoy symbolize the body, the mind, and the spirit, respectively. But hey, whatever terms we use to explain it, to dissect it, the upshot is that the heroic triumvirate remains a character in its own right, an entity greater than the sum of its three parts. By the way, I would argue that we see a very similar triumvirate structure in Enterprise, with Captain Jonathan Archer, First Officer Paul, and Chief Engineer Charles Tucker III, or Trip. In that sense, I would say that the most recent Star Trek series brings the franchise full circle and refers back to the original series structure. 
Okay, so if this triad forms the base of Arthurian and Star Trek lore, then the next layer of storytelling unfolds with the specific tales of individual characters and their unique adventures. Beginning with Wace's first mention of the Round Table in 1155, Arthurian myth expanded to include a whole host of characters and their own separate romances. This, for lack of a better term, episodic focus on knights and their personal travails reached its height in the late 12th century with Chrétien de Troyes. The Frenchman's medieval romances followed heroes like Eric, Lancelot, Yvain, and Percival through star-crossed love affairs, endurance tests, and miraculous conversions. In these tales, and for that matter, others, such as the famous 15th century Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, Arthur certainly is king. He retains his crown and his eminence, but he enjoys only a peripheral role. He delegates. In the immediate plot, he may not be the star. In similar fashion, the 1980s Star Trek The Next Generation enlarges the Trek canvas to highlight a number of individuals on board the USS Enterprise. Of course, Jean-Luc Picard's captaincy remains center stage, but his command style dilutes the focus by stressing the delegation of power and cooperation among the Fellowship of Equals. The Big Three of the classic series thus becomes the Big Nine, and eventually with the loss of characters Tasha Yar and Wesley Crusher, the Big Seven. This decentralization of focus is maybe best reflected in the series by the repetition of the senior officer's weekly off-duty game of poker. Marlene S. Barr has noted that, quote, The round card table is the round table. In the postmodern United States, Camelot and Star Trek never end. End quote. And, just like with the Arthurian texts, the round table motif leads to character-centered works of fiction. The best professional examples of these are perhaps the pocketbook's Riker-Troy romance novels Imzadi and Imzadi to Triangle. Fan fiction readers also demand this variety. The oldest continually running Star Trek fan publisher, Orion Press. You can check them out at orionpressfanzines.com. They've been around since 1979. They offer a wide range of Star Trek fiction in all versions. If you look at the zines that have been published for The Next Generation, there is a pattern. They've published anthologies devoted to the series broadly, Idols and Four Lights, one devoted to Picard, Involution, one devoted to Dr. Beverly Crusher, Fire and Ice, one devoted to William Riker, number one, and one to the Riker-Troy romance, Imzadi. The number of fanzines addressing specific characters and their adventures, then, outnumber the general next-generation anthologies, like two to one. Moreover, in its history, Orion did not offer character-specific ongoing anthologies like this for the other series. This is specific to the next generation. This is suggestive, then, that the round table motif, whether in Arthurian lore or in Star Trek, leads to a more personalized set of adventures with a wide array of protagonists. The tale of each knight of Camelot or each officer of the Federation becomes a myth all its own. 
And I think this is a fitting stopping place for my discussion of the parallels between Star Trek and Arthuriana, and I will wrap up my comments on the subject. We still have to discuss both Star Trek Deep Space Nine and Star Trek Voyager and their Arthurian corollaries in the next Looking Back on Genre History. I look forward to seeing you then. Thank you. A big thank you. Thank you so much, Jamie. So, there you go. That is today's show. I hope you enjoyed it. It's just science fiction at its very best, if you ask me. Yeah, I'm a little bit biased. Hey, how are you, man? Done it for 10 years. <laughs> but it is. That's a great story and a great narration and a great interview. I must say myself. Until next week, just like to say, good night from me. survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.